Greetings to everyone tuned into yet another episode of the Greek Speak podcast. You're listening to the Archon, creator of the series. My co-host, the Greek, will be joining me for episode 8 of this podcast in just a minute. Things are starting to move towards their end with this series. If you haven't guessed it yet, I'm going to round off the podcast at episode 10. I think that provides a good enough scope of subjects for people to digest, and it's also a matter of not being able to squeeze in more time for these podcasts. I've had uh, people email about the excessive delays between each episode, and so that frustration caused by the waiting time is being felt on both sides. But I will endeavor to finish things off strongly, and um, the Greek and I will continue to offer up useful discourse for the remaining episodes. Greekspeak.com continues to have neither political, religious, or commercial affiliations, and is completely funded and managed by myself. So that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy the rest of the show, and thanks again for listening. Hi there, Greek. You there? Greetings. Yes, I am. Hey, it's been a while. Longer than usual. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing all right. So, uh, we have another topic for today? Yes, we do. Um... I think um, we maintained some continuity in the last two episodes, talking about science and then food, um, and we'll be moving on to a different topic today, namely that of politics and the military. You've often touched on different political realities throughout the series without really expanding on them, and so I thought we'd take an episode to break some of that down in a systematic way. So to get us started, I would say that prior to the modern era of the 1600s, Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa were largely controlled by empires that usually had a monarch or an emperor, and you also had the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches that had political influence as well. Um, And you also had the feudal system that would develop when an empire collapsed. But a lot of that changed during the Napoleonic Wars, um, which I'll ask you to speak on later. But as a start, what can you share about the pre-Napoleonic European powers and, you know, how was the empire-based government different from what came after? And, you know, how are pre-modern states structured differently from today's nation-states? Okay, if you want to consider the concept of race or, or nation or tribe, and by the way, the word nation was more pushed by the British, um, but uh, it was sort of a familial grouping. You can see it in ancient texts, uh, biblical especially, lineages. Uh, were divided geographically and uh, somehow maintained borders and things like that. Uh, And then you had the rise of leaders, which would typically in the form of monarchy or or, uh, priesthoods. And uh, it coalesced into the European model that you saw up until Napoleon, and some of it, and if not most of it, did persist after Napoleon. But the European model consisted of basically the religious and empirical leadership, religious being the pope, the Vatican, and then you had an emperor of uh, Europe. And most people are not familiar with it. You hear about the kings in Europe of the various countries, especially the British or the English kings and the uh, French kings. But uh, Napoleon was interesting. He was um, he wanted to go against that uh, to sort of, uh, in an altruistic way, which maybe was the problem, to free humanity from the limitations of such a system. So uh, without getting into a discussion about Napoleon, which I've been picking up a little bit of research on him recently and picked up again on some research maybe a decade ago, but put it down because it's a very narrow focus to look at just Napoleon. 
uh, he was he's been demonized because of that altruistic sense that I just brought up. Um, there's a fellow named Walter Bosley who recently put out a book on the occult Napoleon uh, I was made aware of uh, and how he was very much into uh, hidden mysteries and, and you know what's called natural philosophy and science and things like that. I'm not necessarily endorsing Walter Bosley's very heavily censored you know in terms of you know what, what's in the world he actually believes that most of these things are real. But he might have done something worthwhile or worth looking into. I just heard a podcast about what he wrote about and it seemed to line up with a lot of the things that I had found out, which is very difficult to actually discern because uh, of the negative brush that Napoleon's painted with through history. But just to maybe not focus on Napoleon alone or just Europe alone, what had happened after, let's say, that Napoleonic period is uh, a level of secrecy that had never been done on such a large span put in place on the on the world scale uh, in other words what is really going on and what is really affecting the people uh, has been swept under the rug not in, an, in a minimalistic sense but taken away from view and, and seriously occulted um, again just to go back to Napoleon he pretty much gave the world oligarchs which was pretty much centered in most of the world around the British Empire a black eye and they said we're not going to let this happen again and one way uh by preventing a napoleon another napoleon from arising or such a uh let's say anti-establishment uh a movement is by going secret and not having a target for them you know the anti-establishment movement let's say to focus on and we will still provide a target for them you know a leadership or system that allegedly rules uh, the affairs of most civil societies um, will be basically figureheads and puppets. And basically at that point, you had the termination of any um, above ground uh, surface level uh, uh, power. So it, just to sum things up for contemporary matters or contemporary parlance, I would say that today or within your lifetime unless you're 200 years old if you've if you hear them and see them they are not the real power is is what i would say meaning if you've heard of someone and you have seen someone whether it's in you know history in the past 200 or so years or on television or the radio contemporary it doesn't matter who they are they are not in power they are just put propped up by the powers that be so all your presidents, kings, popes, uh, your black Jesuit, uh, whatever that people scream about, uh, the Bilderbergs, all these people, uh, Rothschilds, Rockefellers, none of those people ha are the real power. So if you've seen them or heard them, they are not in power. They are merely what's put in front of you as the power. Yeah, and there's some other things I'll ask about that as well moving forward. But um, still, though, the power structure that was prior to, you know, the, the Napoleonic period was largely based on the fact that you had ruling monarchs or emperors, like you mentioned. What's the um, the European emperor thing? Can you expand on that a bit? Because I don't, I've looked into that and it's it's very fuzzy. Right. It's deliberately fuzzy because uh, it was, uh, it was in contention by, again, these are tribal affairs, let's just say. Uh, and they, uh, didn't wholeheartedly agreed. In other words, back in those days, if 10% of the population agreed, they did it, where it was that was considered the majority. You know, that was enough because they had enough power to uh, 
quell the the other 90 percent and also there was no reaction time you know there was no internet there was no airplane so if you didn't like something that was going on a thousand miles away you had to get there on foot or by horse or, or by sail ship and it took a long time so it didn't really matter but the emperor ship uh, again I, I i can't expand on it right now i'd have to go back and look at notes which i don't have in front of me um but that's basically a spin-off of a lot of the um what you call the uh, the Netherlands um, Dutch Empire, uh, if you understand, like the East the Dutch East India Company, <clears throat> which um, uh, also worked with the British monarchy. Uh, again, just to go off slightly, the Dutch East India Company. If you look at the largest corporation in the world today, the Dutch East India Company was, I think, a factor of ten times more influential or bigger, right? And uh, they didn't go away. They just, again, went underground around the time of the Napoleonic uh, affairs. <clears throat> but the concept of the emperor was always in the Netherlands area, north, uh, northwestern Europe, uh, versus, let's say, the, the southeastern uh, Europe part, which would be the Roman aspect of it. So they kind of met in the middle. So you had the pope and the European emperors pretty much... Um, that the king's answered to. Ah, oh, I see. And this concept of the, the the Dutch East India Trading Company, there seems to have been a bunch of East India trading, trading companies that popped up in different places. Most notably, you have the Dutch one and the British one, but you also had the French one and the Swedish one, and some like a bunch of countries had that. What was the sort of uh, underlying political motivation behind that? Because obviously, it's not just to go to India and get spices. Uniform commercial. Uh, aspects uh, like the what that people will refer to as uniform commercial code put in practice you, you know um, they they're seeking a, a uniform form of uh, a commercial enterprise kind of like you know your big box stores are today you know like a Walmart type thing or whatever and how much sway did the churches have in this period? And can you contrast how the Catholic Church influenced the European empires versus how the Eastern Orthodox Church influenced the Byzantine Empire? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. I, I can't be answered even in an hour. But essentially, uh, let's let's go back to to the to the essence of it. When you hear the word church, it <clears throat> it's the it, it's the word circus. And it, it, you know, today when you say the word circus. Uh, you know, people laugh because, you know, as we take children and get popcorn and cotton candy and you see elephants and things. But if you know anything about what was, what was called the Circus Maximus in Rome, that was a, a spiritual thing as well. It was uh, j just like today, if you if you see like people come out of a movie theater, their their visage, their face, their expression is very different than what it was before they went into the movies, you know, depending on the film. I've studied that, and uh, you know, sometimes they look agitated, sometimes they look relaxed, because that's a, a spiritual change, a mind change in the individual, and that's what the, the Circus Maximus and the Cirque or Kirke was was to do to the population. It's like a reset, right? You go to uh, the circus or the church every week to reset your mind, and it's a day off or whatever. So the, that that is the real influence of it, you see. Whether it's a Circus Maximus, you know, or a large place like the Vatican or a small church in the neighborhood, that's the, the main influence of it. Versus the Byzantine, it's the same. The Byzantine, I would say, uh, was more Mithraic 
uh, ancient Mithraic or uh, that you would find. And by the way, uh, everyone wants to look at this. The original, uh, well, not the original, I would say for over a couple of centuries, the religion of Rome was Mithraism, right? So that's that's a whole other thing again. You see, that these are eggs we shouldn't crack open because we don't have a pan big enough to fry them. Well, I mean, it's still interesting nonetheless. We don't hear too much about the Eastern Orthodox um, situation. It's almost as if it's in a diminished state right now, as if it, you know, fell from prominence, even though it's obviously still influential in Eastern Europe and places. But um, they have seem to have an odd relationship between the, the Western and the Eastern well, church powers. Well, 1000 AD was an axial period, a minor axial period. That's when the, I think it was around 1020 or 1050 or something like that, or 980. 1000 AD, let's say, on the Pope's work schedule that the Catholics overcame the Byzantine and there wasn't a split. It was a takeover, let's say, um, an invasion. A lot of things happened. The Masoretic text, you know, uh, sort of unifying what's called the Hebrew scriptures was around that time. Uh, there's just a, a whole slew. I think the Vatican was construction started soon after that or slightly before. Uh, it was a lot of change. Uh, you know, it was that it was the first millennia, but its influence is minimal because um, it really ref had a strong reflection of the Persian Empire, even though uh, you had the alleged Greek Empire. Well, the Greek Empire uh, take over the Persian Empire, and even today, uh, when I meet people from Persia or uh, Aryan or Iran and say that I'm Greek, they say, oh, you're my enemy. And it's like, wow, we must have really get kicked your ass so hard that you're still sore 2,000 years later. You know, it's kind of silly. But what's interesting is um, Alexander the Great uh, and his generals and that campaign overthrowing, let's say, the overt influence of the Persians or the Farsi, really, is what they are, they're the Farsi people, uh, more assimilated them uh, than, than reversing their influence on the world. And their influence, uh, religious, cultural influence, stayed around uh, as far as Europe, uh, Eastern Europe. And that's what the Eastern Orthodox is, uh, pretty much. You know. and, and by the way, just, you know, years, for many years I've, you know, I would do sonics and people would talk about Greek philosophy and all that. I'm like, if... Greek philosophy was so good. How well has it served you? Why is um, why is society still in the crapper, so to speak, right? Uh, uh, if it was so good, because the Greeks really were not culture builders, and they weren't that great. They assimilated cultures and actually destroyed some of the fine, finer ones. You know, if you look at, again, there were some smaller cultures that were Farsi, and there were cultures like Thraci and other uh, smaller. Um, let's say tribal nations that would go under the Greek umbrella that were far more advanced and more subtle in their uh, perceptions uh, and finer perceptions were, were assimilated or destroyed by the general Greek uh, empire consensus, right? So the, the Greek uh, is not so great, uh, by the way, because uh, if it was, why are we in, you know, such crap still today? So again, just to overlap though they did not uh, obfuscate or remove the Persian influence and that's basically what you see in the Eastern Orthodox Church that's Mithraism straight up uh, other than going you know a myth building straight up Mithraeums you know which are the temples of Mithra underground and things like that uh, it's pretty similar to it hmm.
to touch on another thing, one thing that I've always, you know, wondered as far as these sort of political systems and also the church aspect of them having power is to identify where, the, you know, the most power lies. And uh, kings prior to the Middle Ages ruled by something called the divine right of kings. It doesn't really get talked about much nowadays, but no one seems to know where the concept came from, except that there's a record of it going back to biblical times, but it seems as if it was something that people thought as self-evident for thousands of years. But to me, at the end of the day, a monarch is really just one person. And I don't know if the divine right of kings supersedes the monopoly of violence that you have when you have an army. So we all know of coup d'etats not being uncommon. It happens a lot. And so does the power really lie with the monarch who's here today and gone tomorrow? Or does it lie with the military, which tends to be more long-lived? Both. Because uh, if there is divine right to a king, uh, he will be also be given the divine uh, protection of a military that is coherent and protective. And bellicose, of course, meaning aggressive and ready to fight. <clears throat> uh, I would say that these things change. Uh, uh, if anyone would consider that there are um, non-corporeal, non-material, or let's just say spiritual forces that rule this earth and are behind everything that you see, um, it, it, it's very cohesive to see that when you say divine right. Certain cultures, when you say divine right, you know, most people in the Western culture will, will say, well, God put them there, like the biblical text, especially in the book of Daniel, loosely states or suggests, uh, uh, basically he says he puts the leaders in place, but he, if you read the book of Daniel, it's not specific uh, whether it's all the peoples of the earth or just Babylon, you see, uh, or, you know, who's being addressed there. So, but we would, either way, if you take it in a specific sense or a general sense, most people think there is a figure uh, directly responsible for it, a spirit. And certain cultures, especially in the East, uh, when they say there's a divine right to rule, it, the divine right doesn't come from uh, a being, a spiritual being. It comes from the actual form, uh, form known as the sky or the heavens itself. You know, like in certain Asian uh, uh, traditions, when they say divine right of the emperor, it's that the heaven has given him the right. And there's no God figure, like a personification of a singular spirit. So when we say that, we have to look at the culture, but either way, it's non-corporeal. So. And to take that a little bit further, as far as contrasting where power lies, at, you know, a political dynasty versus, say, um, something else, I think of, let's say, finance or banking dynasties, like monarchs need money or they wouldn't be able to pay their armies or their subjects, which tends to lead to revolt. And you even had a family like the Medici's who were able to leverage their power, the power of their bank to create their own political dynasties. And I don't know that I've ever seen the reverse happen where, you know, a political dynasty is able to become all powerful in finance. So between those two, which would you say is more dominant, the people that have the, the money or the people that sit on the throne? Uh, when you, it's neither, really, because... When you hear about bankers, uh, bankers don't have money and people with money are not bankers. A banker is something like a gardener or a chef or cook or an accountant. Um, so a lot of people are confused when they mention these banking families that they are very wealthy. They're actually financiers. In, in other words, 
if you're if you're wealthy and you hire someone to let's say if there is money you know versus the credit or even with the credit system you hire someone to manage your your funds let's say you know the bank accounts and and, and assets and things like that the person that you hired or put forward as your manager is not the one that's wealthy so when you hear about all these quote unquote banking families they are not really the the wealthy ones they have the appearance of being wealthy obviously because the way they work their fees are based on either a percentage or you know a contract you see so um when you say something like the medicis are the were the Medici's bankers or were they wealthy people? I'd say they were wealthy patrons and they had bankers that or got into banking themselves. It's sort of like how large corporations um, self-insure themselves sometimes instead of getting an outside insurance company. Right. So that's a that's not so cut and, and dried as people think it is. But I mean, if you have a, a, a control over a certain because hundreds of years ago, you would have had legitimate money in the form of some kind of mineral, whether that's gold or silver or something else. It wouldn't have just been meaningless pieces of paper. So if you're controlling that resource, whether it's the mining of it or the, the storage of it, and you call yourself a banking dynasty, that's still your money, though. That, that's still uh, your wealth. Well, let's go back and do something regarding mindset. Just to Let's just toggle back to something you just said about meaningless worth pieces of paper. There you know, even I use the term fiat currency because that's what it's referenced as. But really, it's not meaningless. The the current credit notes that people have and all that, that's based on um, uh, the banking system, the central bank having a, a first lien on everything in that country. So when you look at a bank note and whatever numbers and things are on there and names and institutions and countries or whatever, the, that represents a lien uh, and that lien uh, represents some bad, some business that went bad at one point, meaning one of the parties was not able to fulfill a contract, so they were bankrupt and put into a receivership. And it's all by presumption. So, for example, if the United States government decided to print its own money instead of Federal Reserve, that would be really fiat because they have no substance to base it on, Right. But if you have a Federal Reserve note, which is the Federal Reserve Bank, and it has it says the United States of America, well, that's just like a regular check. When you have a checkbook printed, it has the bank name printed on the check, then your name on the check, and then the amount. And the amount on the on the Federal Reserve note, those serial numbers represent a lien against the United States. So they're actually not fiat. They they actually represent a legitimate lien where a contract was not able to be fulfilled and the business went bad. Um, I would suggest that uh, just by illustrating that uh, condition, you're in a you're in a in other words, humans are in a situation that they cannot get out of, uh, and will not get out of um, intact. Right. In other words, you're going to. In other words, you've gone to humanity has gone to a point right now with the banking situation that the only way it could get out is by pretty much uh, either. Uh, completely changing the mindset of humanity and just uh, not using it anymore or just utter destruction of the infrastructure, right? What I mean utter destruction, meaning no grid, no, no, uh, you know, no, cent no internet, no electricity uh, as you have it now, uh, no roads, no highways, uh, no, because the, the people that are behind this, the power, 
that uh, has allowed this to happen uh, worship death. And what's interesting when I talk to people about, um, or you know, uh, if someone brings, what do you think of chemtrails or the f fluoride or vaccines? And I say they're toxic, and and um, they come back and say, well, isn't it hurting them also? Meaning those that are putting it out. I said, yeah, of course, and they don't care because they worship death, and if they die from it themselves, they'll just be closer to their god. You see, so it's it's kind of these things are very difficult for the average person to. Not only imagine, it's beyond what they can imagine, you see. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, the worship of death thing, it's not put forth explicitly. They, you know, most alternative uh, spheres of conversation would love to put forth a Baphomet figure or some kind of other uh, imp to be the focus of uh, this sort of satanic fealty. But the death thing is not really talked about very much explicitly. No, they don't. They, they, well, humans are cosmically known to be morons, uh, by the way. I just want to interject that. And, I, and I'm doing that in a, in a kind way. You don't want to hear what I feel or want to say, actually, in a public forum. But uh, in a kind way, humans are morons. Uh, that's why you're always left alone cosmically. Um, uh, you know, always wonder, left to wonder. Because in 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 an in a ideological sense, humans are at the point right now that they don't deserve any more knowledge until they start pondering what's right in front of them, which they don't do. But anyway, the the concept of these minor gods and and imps and demons are what's always put in front in the in what's called that that nasty thing called the internet, uh, uh, it, because uh, that's as far as they can go. Uh, they do they can't people. Um, are, uh, if they're not accommodated, they don't pay attention, you see. If they don't like the information, it can't be true. Or if they haven't heard of it before, it can't, you know, it's not, they're not interested, you see. So now you have a dog chasing its tail scenario, and they're locked into a very, very highly limited um, aspect of knowledge. And so, so again, to bring up something like the Baphomet and other things in Satanism, it's not what people think it is. Those are very small and minor uh, entities in the spiritual world. Yeah, it'll give us some, some interesting things to talk about perhaps in another episode. But to get back to the politics thing, it's, it's really only after the Napoleonic Wars and the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire that this nation-state starts to uh, proliferate itself in the early 19th century, which I think is very curious. We've reached a point in history where most people don't really know the difference between a state, a nation, and a country. And those words are kind of used interchangeably. But from a legal perspective, the distinctions, I think, are significant. Um, so according to academia, a nation state could be defined as an independent state with a written constitution ruled by a political body in the name of its citizens, who are all considered equals. But prior to the 19th century, that structure doesn't seem to be very legitimate because you would have a king who ruled in the name of a god, represented the house of whatever family was on the throne, and he didn't really represent the nation as a whole. So the natives of the state were rather his subjects, but then comes along the French and the American revolutions, and that seems to rebirth the ideal of self-rule in the name of, you know, equal citizens, which I think they borrowed from the Greeks and the Romans. To the best of your knowledge, Greek, why did this nation-state start to spread in the beginning of the 19th century, and particularly after World War I, when the Habsburg and the Soviet empires broke up? Okay, uh, you could even go mid-19th century. I would suggest that these, the concept of nation-state or whatever you want to call it, as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's goes by, goes by na many names, are actually all theocracies. 
loosely presented as such, but they always have a deity behind them. Uh, the current deity uh, behind almost all of these nation states is the goddess religion personified uh, through what's called justice. I think all of these nation states have a department of justice. And let's just uh, take a, a slice of of history. Let's use the American uh, mid-19th century to now as a reference or as an example, and you'll follow suit with most countries similarly. For example, uh, you had the what's called the Revolutionary War at the end of the 18th century, which uh, was basically to expand uh, the wealth and power of uh, of the people who had the most interest in the United in America throughout the geography of the land. If the Revolutionary War had not happened, it had nothing to do with um, uh, the main reason. Had nothing to do with what people are told that it was oppression from King George. It, it's because they wanted to expand across the land, and King George had uh, performed edicts or put proclamations that the native people were to be left alone, you see. And the people that were the revolutionaries or the founding fathers didn't want that. They wanted to expand. One of the reasons was because the English had an anti-Catholic sentiment, and when wherever the Catholics went, they integrated, they converted into Catholicism the native people. And uh, King George didn't want to do that. So he had a series of proclamations to protect the indigenous people. So how are George Washington and company going to expand if they can't interfere with the people's lands? So you've got to get rid of the monarchy, form your own government, and then terrorize and kill the population. You know, They didn't even do what the Catholics did, retain their population or retain some of their... Uh, Civil, uh, society and convert them. They just went and burned and destroyed everything, right? So that's your revolutionary war. It had nothing to do with being oppressed because they were actually the, the initial federal government in the U.S. was more oppressive than the king. If you look at the Whiskey Rebellion and all the seizures and captures that they did, not paying their soldiers, at least the British king, when you fought and they didn't pay you, they gave you, they issued you land rights, right? So that's the Revolutionary War. Then they side with the Napoleon uh, conflicts and campaigns, which was the War of 1812. That doesn't pan out very well. And then uh, the, the, the oligarchs in England want to get back to these uh, scoundrels or rascals in America, you know, Washington and company, I call them. Um, I haven't brought up the Constitution and anything like that because that I see the Constitution as a seditious document against the Articles of Confederation, which were drafted way before that, almost a decade and a half before. So anyway, um, the, to me, the Constitution in the United States is like the Patriot Act was, you know, recently, right? It's a seditious thing. Uh, and I have more than this is not this is an I could voice it as an opinion, but it's it could be shown that there is something called the Articles of Confederation that were just totally ignored prior. So, OK, so now we move past the War of 1812 and the oligarchs are like, we still have to make these these guys pay for the, the Revolutionary War and siding with Napoleon or the War of 1812. So what did they do? They infiltrate um, Abraham Lincoln's office and they give they said, you need to boost your executive powers. You, the president 
the, the, the distribution of power between the legislation, judicial and executive is a load of crap. You need to become king or in other words, the executive powers need to be uh, flexed and put on steroids. Right. So he started passing all these laws for taxation and all this. And of course, nobody listened to him because he's just the president. Right. Which is just a small part of the government. So he started pushing orders and um, uh, executive orders and things and people just ignored it and says, OK, well, we're going to back you up. You're going to start uh, printing money, a whole bunch of it, and then you're going to go and blow up your own fort and say that the South did it, right, the southern states. Now, the southern states were supporting the northern states, right? In other words, they were growing all the material and providing the material through shipping, transport, and agriculture for the manufacturing in the north. Um, and uh, they were not uh, supporting, let's say, uh, a centralized government. They were more of a confederacy. That's why they were called the confederacy, right? So the North and the South were very tied together, and the feds were this little entity, the federal government, central government, which was left kind of like as a small third party. And the oligarchs were like, the only way we're going to go back uh, and take control of this entire region is by creating a central authority known as the federal United States. So what they did was they promulgated a war of the states. It was not known as a civil war of the North versus the South till 50 or 60 years later, right? But at the time, it was known as basically the war of the states. And it was basically the federal government versus the rest of the states. I know this sounds kind of harsh for some people, but if you actually do a little bit of research, even just uh, it shouldn't take more than 30 seconds, uh, Abraham Lincoln in several speeches, they are online, uh, says, I will never address the institution of slavery, right? So again, it's not about slavery at all. It was about how they were going to create a powerful central government. So the, if you said that, you know, uh, was it half a million people or really more than several million people died, uh, was a false flag, it would be very correct, right? Kind of like a 9-11 thing or whatever. So uh, what they did was they threw the country into disarray uh, then uh, you had uh, amendments to the Constitution that created the central government, the uh, District of Columbia, and all a 14th Amendment citizen and all this. And what's interesting, um, a few years or a couple of years after the Civil War, you could look this up. Even there's stuff on, I haven't looked at it in a long time, but from memory serves me right, around 1869, 1871 or something like that, the Department of Justice is formed, DOJ. And if you research that, no one knows where it came from. Kind of like after 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security came ready to go out of nowhere. It's like no one knows where it came from, but it was, right? So uh, no one knows who set it up or what it was for or whatever. And obviously they got to the president at the time. I think it was Johnson um, who was impeached, by the way. They made him sign by executive order, the Department of Justice to represent the government in uh, legal affairs. And no one knows where it came from. There was, you know, the, so in other words, now they have a formal temple with um, its, uh, you know, um, what would you call an uh, army of attorneys, if you want to talk about military, right? That, and, and their whole purpose was inimical, you know, uh, uh, under what's called the Lieber Code. Which, uh, which is, you know, I'm throwing a lot of things out here, and hopefully whoever's listening can look all these things up. But even if I think if you look up what's called the Department of Justice, it's a historical anomaly. It's like, where did this thing emerge from? So now you have the goddess religion in place, 
you have an army of inimical soldiers uh, to the side known as attorneys brought in out of out of just overnight, almost within a year or two, to represent the government, which is a fictitious entity. Right. So at this time, also the the the, the central government becomes the DC Corporation, 1870, 1871, District of Columbia. It's a corporation known as a sovereign state. Which you could look up. A sovereign state is a, a fictional juridical person. It does not exist. It's just a, a, a an entity like a corporation, like McDonald's or whatever. So what I just I threw out a whole bunch of terms and scenarios and things like that. You might consider being the Greeks' opinion, but I assure you, all of it's true. If you do the behind-the-scenes research or besides the crap that's told to the public, even in university, and you will see that now. I'm using this American model that I just put out, apply that to other uh, countries, and you'll see similar uh, processes taking place, right? So now we have a, a, a formal centralized government, which doesn't exist because it's a fictional juridical person with an army of inimical attorneys uh, behind it, right? And this is what you'll find in all the European countries and even Asia. And it's always tweaked according to whatever culture and tradition, whatever country you put it in, so it's accepted. Because if you're, if it's too radical, it will be completely rejected, right? Like if the poison is too virile, the, the victim will throw it up immediately. You want to put just enough poison where it will not upset the digestive system so it can be ingested and then the victim dies. You see how it works? Yes, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't seem that like that system has been smoothly adopted in certain places, notably, you know, African countries where there's a lot of political turmoil. Um, and there's been some South American countries, I think, where it's um, also been viciously sort of pushed back against historically in the 20th century. Well, when you look at those countries, what's interesting, they didn't have major revolts with assembled armies and populace against the authority. Um, I guess not, but you did have a situation where military class you know, uh, rose up to provide some kind of opposition. I'm thinking maybe, you know, places like Sudan or Somalia, where you still have something like that ongoing. I don't know if that applies. Yeah, yeah, it does. Congo as well, um, uh, I would suggest, uh, the Congo region, uh, uh, and more power to them. I don't think that they're, quote-unquote, good people or better people, but at least they're going against, um, you know, a worldwide evil that's uh, that really will not change until there's cosmic interference. So it just it just shows you that you know they can't take one hundred percent of the of the planet, but they could take ninety nine percent. And this proliferation of the nation state or the sovereign state does seem to be something that evolved once empires broke up, because once whilst you had the empires in place like the Soviet Empire or the Habsburg empires, the monarchs were ruling with their own system. So it seemed as if getting rid of those empires was also something to facilitate this agenda. Yeah, well, what happened was the empire was made more uniform and uh, it was taken out of view. So it was out of the purview of the population. So it's, it's so anything that um, any massive group of people or uprising or anything will be like a carnival show. When you go to a shooting gallery at the carnival, you're just shooting at paper ducks or whatever. And um, yeah, we can get into more of the like we wanted to perhaps talk about military and politics. Um, and the thing is you cannot separate that from each, um, 
you know, considering each culture, how the money system works and various other ideologies and perceptions. That's why you have the various systems throughout, uh, you know, parts of the world. Um, but essentially it, it's all one, you know, it's all one, uh, union, uh, uh, on a 99% scale. Like we mentioned Congo and Somalia and places like that, that might, and the Pashtun tribes in uh, parts of Afghanistan. And there might be some Inuit people, uh, they're, they're most definitely, uh, people in Antarctica and other places like that, uh, you know, that we don't even hear about or hear, you know, much of, even though we know it exists on the map, let's say that are still somewhat independent, but, uh, nothing really that would be considered ever formidable or to change the, the current condition. Mm. Um, we're going to go move ahead, but I do want to ask one set of side thing based on what you said. Could you contrast a bit the purpose of the Articles of Confederation versus what the United States Constitution brought in and how that changed the scenario for the country? Well, the, the Articles of Con the, the Constitution mirrors the Articles of Confederation, which was very loose. Uh, like money, uh, there's a lot of academic criticism on the Articles of Confederation because it wasn't specific enough. Well, duh, if you're going to have an ideology where the people are told they're free, uh, you, you, you know, how many specifics do you give someone to be free? If you want to enslave people, you do that with specificity, right? Like if you're in prison, you you have a whole bunch of rules where if you're out living in the country, there's very few rules, right? So the the anyone could look at the Articles and Confederation. I still consider it a pagan document. They do mention uh, uh, justice and a few other things like that, but it was generally loosely defining um, – the, the operation of the states and the federal government, let's say, or the central government. And of course, when you have uh, things loosely operated like that, that doesn't benefit uh, 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 the oligarchs who want to put what's called a corporation or a sovereign state in place, which is neither sovereign and it's neither a state. That's the interesting thing. Like Federal Reserve, it's neither federal and nor does it have any reserves. A sovereign state is not sovereign and it's not a state. Right. You know, um, like American cheese is not cheese and it's not American. You know, I mean, you look at all these um, uh, dubious terms, uh, you know, and and you start to get the, the hang of what's going on. Yes, there does seem to be some sort of pattern to that sort of thing. You brought up the idea of the corporation a lot in what you just said the past 15 minutes or so. So if you look at a corporation as an organization that is authorized to act as a single entity and is recognized as a legal person uh, by law for certain purposes, um, and you talk about the nation as a corporation, can you expand on that a little bit? Where is that idea memorialized and what are the implications for the citizenry of the sovereign state if they are subsumed into such a corporation? Well, well the thing is the purpose was not just to make it a corporation. Was the, the There is a final plan, which is um, basically uh, subjugating the entire, you know, uh, all societies, right? Uh, so the, the you have a usually a three-step plan. Like if you're going to bake cookies, it's more than one thing to right. It's not just cookies. You have to have an oven and pr uh, food preparation, and you have to know how to do it. So what they did was uh, the the reason you create the corporate model because under general corporate rules, um, a corporation it can be bankrupted and put into receivership and leaned right through legal agreement, where um, 
if you're trying to do that with a living being or let's say a sovereign group, uh, they can call, they can examine what is being put on them in, in that fashion and protest it, argue it, or call it fraud. But a corporation can't do that. It just follows along whatever the dynamic parties around it do. So they figured, let's call this a, a, a corporation, and then we're going to bankrupt the corporation and, and either put it in receivership or liquidate it. Right, and you can see liquidations. I think like the balkanization of states is a liquidation. When you see something like the, you know, a, a, a certain empire and it's broken up into countries, it's a liquidation, let's say. But nonetheless, the purpose of creating these corporations was not just to make a corporation as such, but was, is to create a model that can be manipulated. So instead of um, uh, having a model where you have a monarch or a sovereign uh, make promises to people and then uh, renege on them or change, uh, you have a corporation that puts out a veritable plethora of conditions and has people volunteer into those conditions. And then you change those conditions um, on a level that is beyond the education level that the people have so they never realize what just happened. Ah, and then they're stuck with their commitments that they made and the conditions that that and they'll never and they don't even know what they are like in America you can go right now and ask people are they free and like yeah we're pretty much free but you're not you're a slave and I illegally you're a slave you're registered you have a serial number uh, you don't have any rights or freedoms you're under privilege uh, you're managed uh, uh, through the securities exchanges ex uh, worldwide securities exchange houses you can go on treasury.gov if you're less than um, 35 years old, go to bonds, and I think there's a drop-down menu. I haven't been there in a long time. Hopefully, it's still around. On the drop-down menu on treasury.gov, uh, look up bonds, and under bonds on the drop-down menu, it'll tell you what kind of bond, and you choose double E, like the shoe size EE, the two letters, and uh, then you put the bond number in, and it'll ask you the date of the bond number, and you put in the date of the bond number. And guess what you're going to use as your bond number? You're going to take the birth certificate number under double E, bonds, and put in the number, and then and it's going to ask you the month and the year, and you put in the month and the year. Then it'll get more specific for the date. And years ago, it used to show a origination of the bond, and guess what the origination of the bond was? It was the hospital where you were born. So... Uh, you know, anyway, so the interesting thing is when we brought up the history after the Civil War and the sovereign state, whether whether it's what they call Russia or, you know, France, Italy, England, whatever, these are sovereign states in the UN and all this. It was the purpose from the mid-19th century to the 1950s to create a series of these sovereign states was not to just make a corporation, but it was to create a corporation using corporate rules bankrupt it and put it in receivership and put a lien on everything that is, uh, you know, all the the land, the people, the labor, the resources, and hold that lien, all right? Because um, when a lien holder has to be satisfied when there's an exchange, so any exchange that people uh, or anything is performed, uh, any transaction, the, the, the primary lien holder is always considered, all right? So that was the idea. It was never to really just make it a corporation and leave it at that. And before they did this with the Federal Reserve in America, they practiced in Canada, they practiced in England, right? 
they practiced and you know then they did it here because this is the place where everybody thought they would run to escape right so when i say here meaning america or what's called the us so this was a a global or worldwide system that was put in place not to just make a corporation but to basically create a presumptive lien or uh, uh, on it's not like they own you if you like you run into the power brokers or whoever is behind the system says, do you own these? But no, we don't own them, but they, you know, we, we have a first position lean on everything they do, including their bodies. Well, you, you know what I mean? It's, if you put a, if you do something, let's say work on the house or a, 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 an automobile or something, you put a mechanics lien on it. You don't own that thing, but that thing cannot be transacted until your lien is satisfied. Right. And there's no limit to how big that lien is. So it could be everything. See, it's it's sort of that's the real Satanism where, you, you know, they tell you what you want to hear. And when you find out what's going on, they never uh, uh, admit it. But they give you a whole roundabout of stories about uh, how you're wrong and maybe you're right here, but never a clear picture. Right. And you see this with with every aspect of human society, every institution, whether it's the medical field, whether it's the religious field, uh, you know, go on and on and on and on. Physics, science, uh, psychology, psychiatry, religion, medical. I mean, every field. It's all. It's always never a straight answer. Round and round and round about. And they uh, always want you to argue. You want to argue this, you know? They always say, "No, I don't want to argue. You want to debate that always." These are these are the real, as uh, these are the true aspects of Satan, right? Argue, debate, separation, division, uh, lying, uh, no no clarity, suggestive, presumptive, right? So that's the operation of 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 the model. It's not just the sovereign state being a corporation, but it's to throw everything into a position where people, um, it's so complicated, they can't even fathom their current condition. And the only thing they can do in their material sense is go back to their original history where their founding fathers were, right? And that's it. That's where most people are stuck. No matter where you go in the world, they cannot uh, delve into the current condition. They always have to refer back to something that before this condition came on because it's just too ugly, too ambiguous, and just paradoxical to them you know and paradox is basically something that someone doesn't understand they call it a paradox so that, that's pretty much the condition and by the way this will not get better it cannot get better because the ideology and the mindset of, of the people in the world except for maybe those in somalia the congo afghanistan a couple of places like that uh, are fully entrenched and they know nothing else like there's a lot of Americans that talk about make America great again or restore the republic or this, that, or the other. They have no idea what, it's, what it was like to be lawful instead of legal or to have a, um, a nation or a country and not a sovereign state that's legal. You know, they have no – there's no way they can do it. It would be – you would probably be just as effective as having – trying to train a school of fish to climb a tree. It, it's just not going to happen. I do, I do just want to throw out, um, when people hear the word lean, I know that some people struggle with that if you're not familiar with any you know, financial concepts. So that's just the right to keep possession of a piece of property belonging to somebody else until they pay the debt or discharge the debt that they owe you. A, a lien is something you put on uh, because you've performed, there's some, you have an equitable interest in something. Like if I were to um, 
have an agreement with you um, uh, on something. Let's say I'm going to let's say cut the grass in front of your house, and for ten dollars, let's say, and we uh, agree to it, and we we can show that we had agreed to it. I cut the grass, and you don't have ten dollars to pay me, and it doesn't look like you will. So what I do is I do a public filing or public notice. Um, that uh, you owe me $10, and because you have things of, of value, like a house, uh, I'm going to post it and attach this debt to your house. So um, because it shows like you don't intend to pay me now or in the near future or later, eventually you might sell this house. And when you sell this house, that means you'll be getting a whole bunch of, let's say, cash flow. And when that cash flow starts coming to you, I'll be able to bypass it before it gets to you and get my $10. That's an explanation of lien. It's a long-term bypass. It's basically a bypass. Because you owe someone money, for example, and you don't want to or can't, don't have the means to settle that, and when, when money starts coming your way, before it comes to you in total, your debts are settled or satisfied before the, the resulting sum comes to you. That's all a lien is. It's a bypass. What you call yes. taxes or liens. They're not taxes because there's no money to pay to tax, right? Indeed. Okay, so what does the corporatization of, of the nation imply about the leaders? Because there seems to be a consistent display of incompetence by world leaders that it's easily explained if we accept the supposition that they aren't really needed. So what role are those politicians really filling? Well, they're actors, the current American president is a reality show TV actor. We had one that was a film actor before that. And in between there, there were a series of attorneys that no one know how they rose into the position they did. These are people that are groomed from a young age or even pre-generational, I would suggest. You can even suggest, again, the right, divine right to rule. The gods don't think much of you. And proof of that is look who they give wealth and power to. Right? You don't have uh, you don't have anyone of any good character anywhere in the world that I have seen in the past uh, 30 or 40 years in power. Do you? Do you think any of the popes, presidents, or kings are of good character? Well, I, I won't attach. I haven't any... seen any, and uh, in my life, yeah. That means that if there is divine right to rule, they don't think much of humanity because if they did, they would put a proper individual in place. There's a system. You see, um, there is a system in place that we mentioned, the dark forces, and um, let's just uh, skip around, for example. There's something called Hollywood, right? And I've brought this up before, the movie industry. It has to agree with what's taught in school, what's shown on TV, what's in the history books, what's in the textbooks, right? You can't have too much of a difference in, in the general sense. Yes, there are some f films that break the rules, right, uh, shown in, as fiction usually, but they all have to be in agreement. If you understand how the Hollywood uh, system works and why it is where it is and not on the East Coast and other places like that of America, that it is a satanic uh, – it has a, a, a – you know, a, a sort of a – let me say satanic, a dark, dark, a ritualistic aspect to it. Like, for example, when you – in order to become popular, when you hear of like Michael Jackson or uh, Bruce Willis or, you know, you name any actor that is a big actor, Tom Cruise or whatever, that's done by contract when you're in Hollywood. And they look at the actor and they say, can they perform? In other words, if we bring them up in popularity, 
And when they do that, they get into other contracts where they have to perform secret rites and rituals. And I don't need to get into to that, right? And the more they uh, sacrifices and rituals that they do, the more popular they become. This is exactly the same thing with the political world. Uh, for example, you could look up um, one of the rituals that they do is they uh, it's to introduce a particular entity into the body as they they knock you on the side of the head, usually on the left side of your head, uh, knock you out so an entity can enter your body and either stay or leave. You know, back it's a ritual. I'm just informing you know so go online and look at the left eye satanic uh, ritual uh how many people in public prominent um uh actors the pope presidents uh, the rothschild have appeared in public with a black and blue left eye right on this bruise on the side of their head politicians it's always the left eye sometimes the right they even have one with tom hanks holding up a sign, you know, as I can't talk about this, you know. So this is, this is, um, again, you know, we brought up the Baphomet and all these are really small, minor imps and demons that basically, um, we can discuss when we discuss the occult, let's say satanic stuff, the real satanic stuff, the higher up level is control of the whole world and in everybody's home in everyone's, um, traditions and cultures. You see, because if I, you mentioned the Baphomet and let's say the rituals in in Hollywood and the politicians have to go through, those are the minor imps and demons, you see. But that's just a reflection of what these people are influenced or are, you know, influenced by. So you can say that the same power group of people, their religious aspect of it that runs Hollywood also runs the politicians because they go hand in hand, by the way. You know, anybody could do a little bit of research on this. The State Departments give awards, right, and commendations. And look at how many they give to people in Hollywood and show business, the, the actual State Department. You know, people are not aware of these things because they're they're promoting, you know, agendas. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know the British one. There's a British order of something that the Queen's always giving to some famous entertainer that's been around 30, 40 years. Right, right. So you can see that. Um and again, the, the, the real dark stuff that people see on the Internet is nothing compared to the reality. You, you could also look at, for example, sacrifices that are done like people's children, you know, like a son that's 30 years old, a politician's son, and he dies. And it's a mysterious death, you know, and there's no investigation. You have a Supreme Court justice, Scalia, you know, he goes to one of these parties, he wakes up dead, right? No investigation. You know, you have Mike Tyson's daughter, four years old, strangles herself running on a treadmill. Right. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, we're talking about human sacrifice on a major, major level, cannibalism, all this other stuff. And have all of your politicians engage in this? It would be safe to say yes. And if there's any exception, I don't know of it, but uh, I would suggest that they you don't become known. All of the known. For example, there's. Uh, Five or six hundred, you know, representatives and senators in the U.S. Not everyone can name all of them. I sure can't. You could, but you name like maybe half a dozen or a dozen so that are very popular. They have, of course, engaged in all this. There's, you know, the obscure ones probably not, let's say, or on a minimal level. And this is across the, the world. That's why you'll see they all have the same agendas, you know. And and just so, so talking back to, you know, the, you know, the 
you know, they put down the people in Somalia. Like if you see anything written about anyone from Somalia, they say, oh, the self-proclaimed republic. Like that's a bad thing, right? If they can defend it, why not? But they, they're not uh, goody two-shoes. Uh, they engage in cannibalism big time. If they have a victory or even a sport, a soccer team wins, they celebrate by eating the liver of one of the players. You know? I mean, uh, it's not uncommon to be in places on the continent of Africa, Liberia or wherever, and uh, have what you think is beef jerky on the street, and it's human flesh cut into dried strips, you know, sold at, as, as food. So, you know, we're talking about, if you want to look at it from a fantastical point of view, if you're a spirit in the heavens, let's say, before your incarnation here, and you're like, no, you're going to send me down to earth, You've got to be kicking and fighting and screaming to be incarnated into this world, you know, if you if there is any consciousness before that we, you know, we had before we were sent here. There's no way any conscious uh, benevolent conscious being would come down here and want to live a life on this planet. You're yeah, it, it would have to be unconsciously yeah, that you're you know, by lot sent here, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm I'm being positive now. This is op the optimistic side. So yeah, <laughs> sure you are good. Um, so um, continuing with the topic of the military and how that connects to politics, I once read a definition of a state that was the following: A state is an institution forced on a defeated group by a conquering group, with a view of systematizing its domination and safeguarding itself against insurrection and attack by another party. Um, I do recognize what's true in that, although I wouldn't say it's 100% definitive, but the idea that a primary way to create a state is to subjugate an existing one is very plausible. Um, so the presence of a military class seems like a prerequisite for the endurance of most states. What can you share about the preeminence of military in today's times and how active do most Western militaries tend to be and what power do they have in you know their countries, given that it's said to be democratic and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's okay. Let's let's be truthful. Uh, all of that is done after the fact, not in real time. In other words, the time of war and every military is, it just creates chaos. So all the stuff that we go back and uh, look at as the result of uh, military action or war is is not what really happened. It's what's written decades or you know later about it, and that's how it's remembered. Uh, an example of that would be. Uh, let's say if you take the American conflict with what's called Nazi Germany. Well, guess who was um, Time Man of the Year on the cover of Time magazine in 1933? If you go to Time magazine and look it up because they have a page for it, they don't show you. They say not available. Why? Because it was Adolf Hitler. Such a great guy, right? Just like Osama bin Laden was a great guy in the 80s, let's say. So nothing is as we uh, say. And if you bring up, let's say, the, let's say the faction, uh, the warring states, let's say the Nazi state or the National Socialist Party and the American state. Um, if you look at a place like Yaphank, uh, Long Island uh, in New York, uh, Yaphank is Y-A-P-H-A-N-C-K, I guess. Uh, the there was a German town there in the 1930s, and even still today. Uh, they've they've cleaned it up somewhat, but um, if you go on on the internet and look at Yaphank, Long Island, they even had it was an old German town. It was not just a German town as 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 you know for Deutschland, but it was a National Socialist Party enclave where they had 
you know, Nazi parades. They even had Adolf Hitler Boulevard. And there are videos and photographs of, you know, uh, Nazis in uniform goose stepping, just like you see um, in the Nazi propaganda films, for example. Right. And this was going on for about a decade uh, where in, in Long Island, New York. Yeah, Pank. And even today, it's a kind of a weird, weird place still. Um, so you know, when you when you consider what we're told about it, you know, we, this black and white picture, it was the, you know, the Americans versus the Nazis and they were always evil and all that. It's a bunch of a crock of baloney, even throughout till what, what's considered the end of the war in 1945, uh, German submarines would come to the coasts of the east coast of the U.S. and they would, you know, come up to sh uh, surface to recharge their batteries because they're electrically run underwater and the diesel engines on the surface charge the batteries for a few hours, and uh, the people on the shore would wave to them back and forth. The Americans would wave to the German U-boats recharging their batteries, you know, and sometimes the Nazi or German soldiers would get on a boat and come to shore and say, hey, you know, I have a cousin that lives here, you know, can I, you know, check him out, say hi, and they'd all have a party on the beach. This is very different. This is the reality of it. This is very different from the reality that we're told, right? So, and also like, for example, you can take an alien invasion like Mars attacks or all these alien invasions, you know, the aliens show up and there's an outright war or, you know, chaos. It's not like that at all, ever. You see, you, 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 so the point of a state being formed and all this comes much, much later. And it's, uh, it has to be based on the ideology than what the people accept. Uh, for example, from a religious point of view, you brought up South America earlier uh, and Catholicism. That is, it, it, they, the, the indigenous populations had certain religions and deities and ceremonies, and they are still in place today. They just put up a sign that this is a Catholic church. But it's this, everything that's going on is according to the previous culture. So what you do is you, again, form the state. And you, people sign up towards it, which is a corporation, and you control them through that corporation. Mm. And connecting that to um, the military, like what is what does the power structure within the military tend to look like? I understand that you know a general outranks a private, but for example, does a military out attorney outrank even a general? And what are some unexpected hierarchies within the military that don't get talked about? Well, the interesting thing is you could, you know, follow the money. If you look at uh, America, half of uh, all of the energy that's uh, generated is put towards the military, even though it represents less than two or three percent of the population, really one percent of the population. But, you know, let's say two or three percent because of the supporting networks and industries. Right. So um, I think it's uh, the concept of the military is is is. An institution, it's a society within the society, just like when you talk about the elites and all that. And it's really the military that runs the uh, the countries, if you look at it. The, in other words, if, if the military did not agree with certain policies, let's say, put out by the government, I didn't say laws because they don't do law anymore, uh, they have the hardware to physically uh, change it, right? You see what I mean? Like you've seen before. Uh, in uh, coups, military coups and revolutions and things like that. So um, from a military perspective, it is political. 
Um, that's why when you look at uh, – you brought up general has a higher rank than private. If you do a little bit of research on the bios of, uh, let's say, American generals, they all have, um, uh, according to the, you know, the, the public fool system, the education system, university degrees in what field? Finance. Finance. Mm -hmm. yeah. The fake money. Oh, you know, the lean, you know, the, the, the system of uh, what we call fake money. But you know, like I mentioned earlier, it's seriously fake money. You take it very seriously. When you have a lean on someone, you take it very seriously, right? And when you have a lean on someone and you know they're going to sell their house, you take that very seriously because there's your chance to get what you lean them for, you see? There's no money. So it's just a matter of transaction. So... In essence, uh, what you, um, if, if you want to be very truthful of the matter, um, the, the aspect of the military is redundant and obsolete because if it's about aggressing and takeover or just let's just say plainly killing people, you don't need bullets and uh, other things like that. It's done, always done through bi uh, biologicals and food. Uh, all of um, – the battles that you see that you're touted as winning wars are not the way it works. The way you subdue a population is by biological, you know, a plague or pestilence um, or food shortage. Because you have a, a cultural mindset some places that say, we'll fight till the last man, right? No, you won't. Because if you don't have any food to eat you're not, and you're sick, let's say, because we've dropped biologicals on you, uh, you're not fighting, you know, uh, at all. None of you are. It is absolutely the, the whole military thing is just, uh, you know, um, the, it's it's uh, the planned obsolescence. Like for example, consider the cell phone. Do you know that uh, cell phones have um, within their circuit board, within the CMOS, meaning the main operating chips, uh, a timer, and after a certain amount of time, it stops working, and you can't bring it back. Right. I'm sure that, you know, there are some people who know how to bring it back. Right. So, oh, phone stopped working. Printers uh, do that. You know, these devices have built in obsolescence because let's say you have an Apple iPhone one and it's built so well because, you know, it's a good quality phone. It lasts you 20 years. Uh, uh Two years stops working. Get the next one. Same thing with the military. We need better planes. We need better tanks, better. No, you don't. Because it's, the, the way you take over a society is by either uh, cutting off their food supply, poisoning their food supply, or poisoning them or giving them disease. You don't need better tanks or planes for that. That's the way it's always been done. Just like you know, uh, poisoning the well. You've heard that's a cliche. When the Romans laid siege or the Babylonians or the Assyrians, um, if they had time, they uh, went after the water supply and also uh, uh, disease, uh, putting disease on the population to a certain degree where they capitulate because you don't want to give a disease that won't go away because then, you, you know, there's no sense of taking them over. So this is how it's done on planet Earth. Now, the, the propaganda about military and war and state and all that is just propaganda. That's just uh, like the iPhone, you know, uh, we got old equipment and whatever. Uh, we need new equipment. It's just an industry. People, again, are more, too moronic to realize um, how things are done, so they have to accept um, what they're told. Mm. But, you know, I think we've talked, at least privately, about the connection between the military and crime or the criminal classes. Can you expand a bit on the notion of how the military and even maybe the police have not only a monopoly on violence, but also on crime and worked actively to, you know, profit from that? 
Well, you have to, you know, when you say ethics and morality, morality is more of a personal idea of what someone is right and wrong. Then you have the ethics, which is what is the blanket ideology, right? Um, it doesn't take a genius or a good researcher to figure out that you're no longer in a lawful environment uh, unless your tradition is held on to some lawful ways or means or laws. So everything is now legal, which is, you know, anything goes. So um, when you see, for example, uh, uh, what people attach to as being valuable, you want to take control of that because now you control what people see as valuable and because they, people see it as valuable, they'll do anything to get it. And that's basically where the police and the military come in. I mean, um, to manage that. And by the way, there is no police in law. Police... You can study this. Police started in Europe when the uh, the private bankers had, you know, pretty much influenced the government so much that they told the government, "We need our uh, our own private security forces to manage our stuff that we have liens on," and they agreed. So they brought in, they created police, and also to make sure that everyone does what they're supposed to do. So if you're a dentist, you don't take any interest in astrophysics, right? If you're a car mechanic, you don't take any interest in uh, medicine. That was another purpose of the police, to make sure everyone stays within their station or within their profession, believe it or not. This was the this was publicly defined years ago. That's why when you hear people like Wilhelm Reich, who was trained in psychology and psychiatry, when he started going into biology, they had to throw him in jail from, you know, some obscure conviction, right? So make a long story short on the police uh, and the military regarding what we call the black market – what you see with the politicians is when they start regulating something, what they're doing is – you see, whenever there's regulation or prohibition, the answer to that is the black market. You see, so, so it's always in reverse. People think, oh, this is regulated now. The only way to get on the black market. No. They, people look at these things, the people in power, and say, how much will the market bear? And they say the white market or the black market, You know, the surface market or the underground market. And if they determine that something's value will go up 10 to 100 or 1,000-fold in a black market, what they do is they have uh, policies that regulate or prohibit the item so then they can, quote-unquote, make the profit on the black market. You see, it's backwards. You see what I mean? Uh, um, so when you see laws prohibiting uh, or preventing something, that's because it's been assessed that its value will – you know, arithmetically go up if there's a black market. And the military and the police are there to protect that. People think the black market emerges after there's regulation. No. It's something called what the market will bear. If you've ever been around uh, industrial uh, engineers or people that advertising or put out products, they say, what can we sell this for, you know? You see? And that's always assessed, no matter what it is. And if again, if something comes up to the assessment that its value will go up many fold in a black market, they create the black market by regulating it on the white or surface market. That's all. There is no the, the politicians, what they call lawmakers. They call them lawmakers. It's so funny, you know. Every country has lawmaker. Ask them about any law. They don't know any law. It's just a name. You know, it's like a giant shrimp, you know, or military intelligence or whatever. It's an it's an oxymoron. This is planet Earth. You know, if I knocked you over the head and you were unconscious and you woke up in a zoo, how long would it take for you to figure out you're in a zoo? Right? Well, you've been on this planet for more than 15 minutes. Do you know what's going on here? No. 
And that's just a general statement that I usually make. And if you haven't figured it out by now, you probably won't. Because what's going on is not only hard to imagine, it's beyond what you can imagine. Indeed. Um, in what way does the military tie into um, the sort of the one world corporation of nation states? Because, I mean, if the whole world is one corporation, why do the states fight each other or go to war? You know, even Burger King and McDonald's don't mind setting up restaurants next to each other because it's good for business. So then war sort of would defeat the purpose of a one world unified entity, wouldn't it? Yeah, not, not really. Uh, if you live in the country... They have things called duck season and deer hunting season because when you have improvements like roads and railways and things like that and you have too high of a deer population, it gets really messy and dangerous. If you're traveling down the road in an engine-powered wagon and a 300-pound stag jumps in front of you and you're going 50 miles per hour, 100 kilometers per hour, that's, that's not going to end well in about a third of a second. So you need to start culling the herd. Right. Uh, it also, you have to remember military is a rite of passage in many cultures. You know, I remember uh, meeting people from all over the world in the 70s, and they, they, I would see like two people say, have you been in the military? And they're like, no. And like, oh, they frown on him. Like, what's wrong with you? You never be a man, you see. So uh, it's, uh, it's a cultural thing. Hmm. And there, I've heard that there are certain other aspects where the military have a certain allegiance where they have to go to war in order to appease, you know, their well, leaders. Well, so uh, again, we were mentioning Baphomet and the minor imps and demons. Uh, most of the military battles and things that you see that you see are unnecessary. Especially a good example, again, it's many do it, would be the American military. Uh, about 90% of the engagements they have is not with other military forces, but with civilians. You can look at the kill sheet, the American, American military, 90% of it is civilians, like women, children, old people. Only 10% is mil other military. And they look at the bombing of Dresden. That was a human sacrifice. They even uh, had prisoners, American prisoners in Dresden. Have you ever heard of Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Slaughterhouse 5 or Slutenhaus 5 in German, right? Uh, that, you know... Um, uh, it was they had open air prisons and the Americans were like great it's full of Americans let's bomb that too. The Americans don't um, they, they're like they, they they're a pretty good more they're very sloppy and it's it's very easy to discern that a lot of the American military's actions are a spin off of what's called the Hellfire Club in England which supposedly doesn't exist anymore you know but you know they're just uh, overt sacrifice you know. What was that again? Because I, I looked into it once, but uh, you could look at the founding fathers. They're a Satanist, you know, like uh, Ben Franklin. It's no mystery. You could look up. They they were restoring one of Benjamin Franklin's homes, and they dug down and they found a whole bunch of headless bodies and dismembered bodies. You know. Oh, so yeah. like torture for sport. Yeah, or or uh, you know, uh, uh, he was into electricity, so he figured, why don't we start chopping up people, putting them back together, and using electricity to reanimate them? You know. Oh well, we've seen that portrayed in certain fictional. Yeah, yeah, I think Barry Shelley was inspired stories. by the stories that wrote Frankenstein. So, yeah, none of your. Uh, 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 I mean, this is a very dark, dark place. Uh, 
you know, you know, if you remember uh, being in certain places, uh, uh, you know, don't go down the street. There's a haunted house or that's where the crazy people are, or whatever. That's that's planet Earth cosmically. But the, again, the military is if you were to say it's just part of tradition and culture. Uh, there's no purpose to it. It doesn't defend uh, it, and, and it doesn't. And when it offends, especially if you look at the Americans, it's just you're just killing the population. Give the Iraq wars uh, or any other when they want to go and oust, um, for example, the Iraq war or what they were talking about North Korea with Trump. Oh, yeah, we'll just go and, and turn your whole city, your whole country into a fireball. Well, so now you're now you're saying uh, we, no, it's not just Kim Jong-il, let's say, that's a bad leader we should get rid of. We want to kill all the North Koreans, all five or 10 or 20 million of them. Look at Iraq, you know, Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein. Well, you know, we just don't want to get someone else saying we want to kill a million Iraqis, right? You see, it, it's not uh, – they always give the re – whatever reason you hear, it's total crap. Um, it's, it's this is old-fashioned religion. Um, it's the goddess religion in place, which is to destroy uh, the way life is naturally done or has been put in place and create another way that life is procured, right? That's the goddess religion or this particular goddess because there are other goddesses like you know wisdom, for example, that is not uh, of such uh, an ilk. So um, – yeah, uh, you know, here, here's the other thing. Like uh, I talk, when I, we mentioned the character of the politicians, do you, do you know anyone in the military? It's very rare to find anyone of good character. For example, about 90% of the veterans that I've spoken to, young and old, say, uh, when you get to know them, they'll tell you that, oh, the military was horrible. Um, it was mostly insane people and just people that wanted to, uh, really stupid people. Or people that uh, just wanted to kill other people for you know, just for no reason, just just wanted to kill people, right? That sounds about right, you know. When you say, well, of course you want people that want to kill other people in the military, right? Because uh, that's what they're supposed to do in the, being in the military. It's a bellicose uh, uh, institution, uh, you know. But when you start hearing this, uh, especially from people that were officers, and they say that I found that my own men were more dangerous than the enemy. Uh, you start to wonder, you know, this is not just about the military. It's just another um, active part of human society. Like, it's very accurate to say that humans are morons and people in the military are just weaponized morons. It's very simple. You know, most people take offense to it. And, you know, you, you hear a lot of, um, you know, stuff on uh, the Internet and other places. Oh, we're not saying this to offend anyone. How can you not? I mean, if you are addressing uh, a million people or 300 million people or a thousand people, there is no way anyone can say anything consistently and not offend one of those people in some way, whether they voice it or not. So the whole thing is to bypass all that nonsense and start thinking cosmically. Like, you know, like you're not from here and you don't live here, but you're visiting and you're trying to be an astute observer and objective. All right. You'll find that it is it is just a moronic existence. And um, again, the humans are morons and the military is just weaponized morons. There's nothing much else to say. I get your drift. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be said as far as expanding things to give more nuance. But I understand the overarching idea of what you're saying, that once you understand it, it sort of uh, 
Yeah, there is a very small um, choice group of humans, of course. Just let's look at it from an agricultural perspective. If you're ranching and you have a herd of cows, there is a small choice bit of cattle that you would, you know, have as Elsie on the milk carton photograph, right? Or if you're an apple farmer, there, out of all the tons and tons of apples you harvest, you'll always present a small choice group, right? Select group of, right? So of course, there are a select group of humans, and uh, I'm not going to say good or bad because no one is good enough to go to heaven and no one's bad enough to go to hell in the Christian mindset, right? Even though we know that's not how it works in reality. Um, it's Everyone does uh, good stuff and foul stuff, uh, but uh, amongst that condition, uh, you have a select choice of premium samples or specimens, and they do exist. So when I, that's why I say lovingly humans are morons uh, and, and the military are just weaponized morons. The, the, amongst that, there is a select group and, of course, a choice you know, sample, very small on the planet, that if you had to say this is what humans uh, are when they, you know, at this state of the art, do exist. But you know, when we do a sonic like this to describe a condition, it's a general uh, condition uh, with some specifics, but hopefully the specifics are to support the general statements and to further on anyone's research to give them a head start if they want to look into something. Just like I went into what's called the Civil War. I gave you a, a, a pretty honest and objective uh, breakdown of what the American history was about earlier. Uh, and I have to sh uh, uh, shroud it as opinion because the whole thing in one small package like that is you won't find anywhere. But I gave enough specifics you can look up that you will be able to not only form your opinion, but actually see it for what it is, which is the truth. And that is much appreciated. I'm sure people will have, you know, a lot of time on their hands at some point to look into that if they're interested. Um, but let's round up because um, we've been going on for quite a bit. Um, the last thing that I want to sort of ask is if the political class is actually subordinate to the military class, why don't we see more of a preponderance of military-run states or coups? Something has to keep the military in check, um, even though they have the hardware to do what they want. They ultimately don't seem to do whatever it is that they want. So what is it that keeps uh, control over that? The same. They're all the same, basically. There is, there is no division between them. In other words, um, the same... the. The, the, the active military, um, what would you call campaigning that you see? You know, like, for example, you, you hear in the news America is against North Korea or Iran or whatever. That's just in the news. But when you see them actually doing something, that is the active aspect of it. You know, it's usually you don't know before. You usually find out after it happens, right? Because they call it a, you know, a breach of security if you find out before, Right. Where those orders come from from the military are the same ones that prop up the politicians. And of course, you have to create a division that, you know, I'm against this and you're for it, you know, whatever. But no, there is no division. There is no, they're all puppets. All of them. If, in other words, if you've heard of a military figure or seen a military figure, they don't have any power. The same with the politicians. If you've heard of them or seen them, they don't have any power. And I'm 100% sure for the past 50 years. 100%. More than 50 years ago, maybe 
might have been, you know, in there. You might say you have gateway people or liaisons, like someone like uh, that just won't go away, like a Henry Kissinger, for example, right? Or or an, a Rockefeller or a Rothschild. Those kinds of people, they're like liaisons between the surface powers, what you who you're told is in power, and the the, the powers that you know are behind uh, the political and military and all that other stuff and policies. You know, when you see these people that just don't go away, uh, you know, like Blair is one of them. You know, he keeps popping up in a political scene every now and then. You don't hear from him for a year or two, and all of a sudden he's in the news. He's like a liaison. You'll see these people that just don't go away. They're like the liaisons, but that's the most you're going to get. They have no power also. So again, for sure, for the past 50 or so years, if you've heard of the character or the person's name, or seen them, they are they have do not have power. They are put in front as as a leader or whatever. All right, um, I think we've been able to offer up quite a comprehensive talk on the subject of military and politics. I feel that we can lay that subject to rest at least for now. Um, are there any other points you want to touch on before we exit? No, but I, I would suggest that uh, like a sonic like this one might be helpful to some people because, again, uh, going back to what I said, how the American Civil War is an example for other countries as well, I have not found anyone uh, out there that can piece something together like that very quickly. I'm not saying that I'm better or I know this stuff. I'm just saying that uh, it, it, if you're going to look into any of these subjects, in other words, the real history – uh, political or military or whatever, it, it, you could actually waste a lot of time because there's so much misdirection and misinformation. It, you know, so the only thing I would suggest is uh, be poignant. You know, look at uh, the money sources, the technological sources, again, the political and military sources that have created the conditions in whatever country as as being a facade and misdirection. Uh, you know, in the academic and uh, orthodox history that you're given. There's always a, a very simple secret uh, uh, set of, uh, let's say, outline behind all of that. Uh, and I can't um, stress how much that uh, anyone trying to do this on their own, uh, just off the cuff, will waste a tremendous amount of time with the standard academic crap that's put out there. So the only final point I could make is if you're studying any of the subjects we mentioned tonight, Try to get your hands on reference materials that were published back during the time you were looking at instead of what's written about that time now. So that's pretty much it. Yeah, you mentioned a website that, that has uh, useful articles from 18th, 19th century uh, newspapers Rare, and stuff. Like yeah, that. it's really a, 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 a internet store. It's called Rare Newspaper Articles and Magazines. Uh, if you could find an archive, just, you know, whatever period, you know, if you want to study Napoleon, you have to go back and find stuff that was contemporarily printed, even though it was a, still misdirection, because it's always misdirection. I mean, if you look at, if, for example, if you're a student of the Bible and you look at, uh, you know, uh, not just the King James, but, you know, uh, more original forms of preservation, and you read it with comprehension, and then you look at what supposedly came out of that, the religions, you're, you're going to scratch your head and say, how the, the two couldn't be more different and more further apart, but how can people think they're the same, right? So the same thing is with history. So you're going to have to go back. 
and find what was existing during that time and commentary on it and uh, what was really going on. Very difficult. Mm -hmm. As far as websites, I think there's something called the Mitchell Archives and another website um, that's called uh, Back Issue Newspapers. So there's a bunch of different ones that you could use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and remember, this is not when when you're doing research, you, you're you're probably you know you're doing good research when you run into things that were never really completely addressed for the general public, because the general public has always been ignorant and primitive and savage at best. You always want to look for things that were car, private correspondences or correspondences within whatever body it was or institution, because throughout history. Anything that was put out uh, to the public has always been bunk. I mean, again, if you go back to the biblical things, uh, stories, if you look at the biblical Christ, within less than a few decades, they had uh, publicly, within that time period in the first century, twisted the whole story and no one knew what was going on, what happened, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years prior regarding the life of Christ. It was totally changed. So... You know, and you, uh, this is this is true with everything. All right, I think we'll uh, put a full stop on that, and um, it's been a good discussion. Um, thank you to everybody who tuned into this episode. We'll see you at the next stream.